Okay, well last week we went through Matthew 13, uh, 24 through 43, looked at three different parables. Um, the two smaller parables laid out were the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. And the, the point of those two parables was the same, that the kingdom of God started out small and then grows and becomes mighty and great until the very end when it becomes very great and Christ comes back and rules the whole earth with a rod of iron for a thousand years. Uh, so that's the purpose of those two parables. And the parable of the wheat and tares, a very misunderstood parable. So let's see how much you remember from what we t- talked about. Now in this parable, um, the field... Is it the world or the church? The world. That's right. It's the world. So maybe we'll look at this parable here, and they don't even look at Jesus' explanation, unfortunately. That's what it seems like. Anyway, because he says what it is. Uh, they'll take this, this parable of the wheat and tares and assume it's talking about true and false converts in the church. But it's talking about the seeds of the evil one, which he planted, and the seeds of God, which he planted in the, in the field, which is the world, according to Jesus. Okay? And we saw that uh, who who actually planted the, the tares among the wheat? Go ahead, brother. What did you say? The devil. The devil, yeah. An enemy has planted these things. And so the, the workers in the field asked, asked the, uh, the one who sowed the seed, which is the son of man, if we go back to the explanation, uh, asked him, you know, did, did you plant these? He said, no, an enemy has done this. Which kind of destroys Calvinism because... You know, Calvin says that all things, whatsoever comes to pass, has been ordained, decreed, predestined by God. Well, if the enemy is doing these things, then God's obviously not doing them. He's taking responsibility for it. He's putting the responsibility upon the devil, the enemy, for doing these things. He's not taking responsibility for it. But if he's the one decreeing, ordaining, uh, causing all things to happen by force, he would have to take responsibility for it. And then there's this issue of, do you want us to then go and gather them up? Uh, and this is an important issue. This is one of the reasons why people will say uh, that they believe in once saved, always saved from this passage. Because if you look at verse 29, it says, No, lest while you gather the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. And people like Charles Stanley and people who believe in once saved, always saved like him will say, Well, the reason why you would accidentally uh, get wheat with tares is because they look a lot alike. Um, and that's not what he says here, because obviously the servants themselves realized there were tares among the wheat, so they could recognize the difference between the two. So he's not saying they look alike. He's simply going back to the natural explanation of if you rip up tares from the ground, the same ground the wheat is planted into, guess what? You can rip up the wheat with it. He was going back to the natural example. And that's, a, that's just an example of people taking uh, parables too far and reading things into it that weren't meant to be read into it. He's simply saying, that's not your business. Because who's going to do it at the very end? The angels will do it. They'll gather together all of them and separate them, the wheat from the tares. And that, that's what will happen in the end. So we looked at the, the wheat and tares last week, and we also saw one more thing that we, one of the main things we talked about was when are the tares burned? Uh, now if you just read this parable itself by itself and don't interpret Scripture, with Scripture, you might think, well, when Christ comes back the first time, that's when the tares are for, thrown into the furnace of fire, it's when they're thrown into hell. But we saw by going to Revelation uh, 20, um, and Revelation 14, and 19, Zechariah 14, Isaiah 63, etc., we looked at these passages to see what's going to happen exactly to the wicked who are coming against Jerusalem when Christ comes back, and when the wicked will be burned. So I asked you the question, when will the wicked be burned? When, when will they be thrown into hell? 
on Judgment Day, that's right. Which happens before or after the thousand year reign? That's right. After the thousand year reign. Now what does happen to the wicked? Now we looked at some interesting details on Zechariah. It tells us exactly how God's going. You know, he talks about him stomping out the grapes of wrath, you know, stomping them out. And we get that picture of that with this big vat with grapes in it, and they're stomping around and getting wine out of it, which is, you know, the color of blood to some degree. And Jesus having blood all over his, his robe. It's not his blood, it's their blood. And, uh, but what, what exactly? Is he really going around stomping on people? Or is, what, what does Zechariah 14 say is going to happen to him? Yeah. The flesh dissolves off their skin. Their eyes dissolve in their sockets. Their tongue dissolves in their mouth. And um, so God, Jesus doesn't have to go around and stomp out all his enemies one by one with his feet. He's going to dissolve them. That'll be his judgment upon them. And then the birds of the air will come and feed on them, like it says in Revelation 19, they'll come and feed upon them. But the only people cast into the lake of fire on that day that Christ comes back is the false prophet and the Antichrist. It's not until after the thousand year reign where the rest of the wicked are cast into the lake of fire. Okay, so we can't just take this passage and say, look, the wicked are being thrown into the furnace of fire right when Christ comes back. No, they're, they're bon- it says in verse, uh, uh, verse 30, it says, bind them up in bundles to burn them. Okay? And that relates back to the, to the Jews because the Jews, they use the tares that they find from the field for fuel. And they'd bind them up in bundles and use them at a later time for fuel. And that's what, what God's going to do. To the wicked. Okay, this week we're going to look at uh, Matthew 13, verses 44 through 58. So let's start reading in, in 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. When he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he said to them, Therefore every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue. So they were astonished and said, Where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country and his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works because they're, because they're because of their unbelief. Okay, so the first... You know, what we've seen so far is Jesus has explained every, just about every parable so far, okay? They ask for explanation and give it to him. But we see now, and he's also talking to multitudes before now. But now, as you see in verse 36, he sent the multitude away. He's talking to just his disciples now. So in verse 44, he's talking about the parable of the hidden treasure. Now, interesting enough, the word treasure here is a Greek word, thesaurus, which is where we get thesaurus from. And it means a treasure, a collection of things. 
And when it comes to treasure, you know, we've all heard of the, the hidden treasure maps where you get this map and you have an X on the map, you have to take this many steps this way, that way to get to the treasure. And people are looking for treasure all their life. You'll see older elderly men on, on the beach in Daytona, they'll have their metal tethers out searching for, for treasure. You know, they're they're spending their lives doing these things. And the worth of a treasure is dependent upon um, a person and their situation. You know, if, if a person, uh, you know, treasures gold above all else, they're going to search for gold. They're going to search for that treasure. If a person treasures knowledge above all else, they're going to spend their life getting knowledge. You know, it, let's say the situation is a person in an, in an airplane that's going down. And now often here, you can either have these, this million-dollar briefcase full of million dollars, or you can have this parachute. In that situation, what are they going to treasure more? The parachute. But they can't do anything with the million dollars if they die in the, the crash. If you see a person in a desert, you offer them some diamonds or some water. A couple of gallons of water that can make them, let them survive to the other side of the desert. Which one are they going to take? Which one are they going to treasure more? The water or the diamonds? Water. They're going to treasure the water. If they're smart. And so, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. And if a person understands their situation, that they're a sinner in need of a savior, they'll understand that the kingdom of heaven should be their great treasure. It should be the thing they treasure more than anything else in the world. So much so, that they'd be willing to give up everything else just to have that one thing. And I want to ask you a question this morning. Everybody listen up real carefully. Everybody look at me. Do you treasure the kingdom of heaven that much? That you will neglect every single thing in life for it? Everything? Is it that treasure to you? You look at these people who search all their life for, for this treasure. Do, we, do they put us to shame in our seeking after the kingdom of heaven? Seeking after his kingdom first and his righteousness? Do we treasure it that much? You know, We've, we've sung this, this hymn many times in our fellowship. It's probably my favorite hymn. And this is the fourth stanza. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of Heaven, my Thou art. Do you mean that? Is He truly your treasure? Is He your? Is He first in your heart? Thou and Thou only? Or do you desire man's empty praise? You know, Thou my inheritance. That that definitely comes from the Old Testament. The Levites they had nothing else. He said to them, I will be your inheritance. And I tell you, they had the greatest. Because having God as your inheritance is greater than any land inheritance. Greater than anything else you can have. And we are like a type of the Levites in the New Testament. That Christ is our inheritance. You know, the Apostle Paul in Philippians, and this is a this passage is, is part of another song that I really like. Um, it's Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. And he talks about all the things that he, ha- he could boast over. 
you know, Jew of Jews, uh, circumcised on the eighth day, the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteous, which is in the law, blameless. And then he says in verse 7 of Philippians 3, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Rubbish. You know, the word, the word we use there is dung. Is everything else, when you compare your love for everything else to your love for God, does it look like comparing dung to treasure? That's what we must ask ourselves. That's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. Counting all things lost for the excellence of knowing Christ. And Paul, of course, goes on to talk about knowing the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Got to keep that last part in mind. Fellowship of his suffering. So this man sold all that he had. This, this, this treasure he found was so much of him, he gave rid of everything else and just had that now. Now, God may never call you to sell everything you have. But the question is, where does your heart lie in, in, when it comes to your things? When it comes to everything else in life? And you compare your love for that to God, to Jesus. In verse 45 and 46, talk about the pearl of great price. Very similar thing here. And you have to understand, pearls, and, pearls were, were very uncommon in those days. They didn't find a way to manufacture them in a man-made way. Because the way a pearl is manufactured, you have, you have a, a, um, uh, a, mu- a muscle or a mollusk, okay? It's usually the one that has, uh, what's the name of the food that's inside of it? Uh, circle, not a scallop, but a uh, oyster, there we go. Thank you, brother. I had a brain fart there for a second. Uh, so the oyster keeps a tight-knit clothes on its shell once it's eating something. But every once in a while... Uh, something foreign gets in there. And when that foreign thing gets in there, to protect itself from that foreign thing, it creates a pearl. So it's a very rare thing unless man starts to manufacture. See, man found out over the years, not back then, but over the years, oh, that's what happens. I'm going to open it myself, put something foreign in there, and I'm going to have this, this whole seabed of pearls. I'm going to create them myself. But back in those days, it wasn't like that. It was very rare to find a pearl. And so it's a very rare thing, and he was willing, this merchant was willing to, to uh, sell everything he had just to buy that one pearl. And that pearl should be Jesus Christ to us. They want to give everything for him. And when we realize our situation, and we realize the worth he has to us, we will do that. We will do that. Uh, verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragon that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind. Which when it was full, they drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So we have this dragnet that probably has, it's a, it's a big net, probably has weights in the bottom, floats on top, they throw it out, and they're dragging it in. A dragnet. You get what I'm saying here? So they're dragging it in. And as they're dragging it in, what do you think the sea uh, floor is, is symbolic of here? The church or the world? The world, yeah. Because he's dragging it in, and when he drags it in, he's going to get the good and the bad. And it says at the end of the age, the angel will come forth. It's the same thing that happens in the parable of the wheat and tares. And will separate the good from among the just. The wicked from among just. 
And he asked them, have you understood all these things? They said, yes. And then verse 52, he says, Therefore every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Now a scribe is someone who is a scholar of the Old Testament law. Okay, an expert in the law. But this expert in the law doesn't just stay an expert in the law. He is instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven. And now he's not just bringing out old. He's bringing out old and new. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to be a true scribe, a true scholar, you need to find out what the Old Testament is pointing to. And I'm revealing it to you now, and you can bring out not just the gold, but the new. And uh, when someone understands the Old Testament and the New Testament, then according to Jesus, they're a scholar who can bring forth both old and new. And then we have this, this encounter with Jesus and Nazareth. Okay? And there's, there's dispute about whether this is the, a second encounter there or this is one of the only encounters there. So let's, let's turn to Luke 4, 16 through 30, and let's, let's see if we can figure this out, see if there's any kind of... Uh, and we'll turn to Mark 6, 2 after that and see if this is the same encounter or something different. Okay, Luke 4... Uh, starting in verse 16 and going through verse 30. So he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, You surely will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard and done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly I say to you, no prophet accepted in his own country, but I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath, in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel at the time, in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and he led him to the bow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down off over the cliff. And passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Okay, so we see this. We've, uh, we've already read... Um, Matthew, we're going to read Mark in a second. But tell me, why were they so mad at him? What did he say that made them, made them so angry? Pointing out their unbelief. Like yeah, point out their unbelief. You think it was kind of insulting to them that he would remind them that uh, in the days of Elijah and Elisha that the only people who were fed and healed were non-Israelites? That would have offended them. I mean, because they, they treated non-Israelites like they were the plague of the world. Okay? 
didn't like them. They considered them non-elect. You know, they weren't chosen by God. That kind of thing. And they kind of had a pride about that. And so when, when you said something like this, that, that made them angry. It made them so angry, they wanted to throw them off a cliff. Now let me give you some information about Nazareth. Nazareth was a very small town. Probably had about 1,500, 2,000 people in it. So probably everyone knew Jesus. Okay? And if we notice, in verse 55 of Matthew 13, it says, Is this not the carpenter's son? It's possible. I don't know. It's possible his father was the only carpenter in the town. If that is true, they would have definitely have known him very well. So, for them to you know, know him all his life, for over 30 years, like he started his ministry at 30 years old, Jesus did, uh, to, to want to throw him off a cliff now. And it says he was, it was his custom to go into the synagogue on the Sabbath and stand up and read. So they, had, they knew he was like this. They knew he was a teacher. But now, all of a sudden, they're going to throw him off a cliff. And he's, you know, a prophet, not without honor. His own, it has no honor his own hometown, his own country. But they were probably offended by the things he said. And it tells me sometimes it's okay to offend people. We don't always need to be concerned with that. If we're telling them the truth, it's okay to offend them. And we'll see more about that later on when we get into Matthew, because Jesus will actually address that issue when the Pharisees were offended one time. Okay, let's go to Mark chapter 6 and read verses 1 through 6. It says, Then he went out, Jesus went out from there, and came to his own country, and disciples followed them. Followed him. When the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is, is this which, which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Or are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives and his own house. Nor could he do uh, no mighty works there, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about in the villages in his circuit teaching. And now we also see that in verse 3, that not only was his father a carpenter, but he was a carpenter. We see that in verse 3. So he followed in his father's footsteps. And, you know, the fact that they're calling him the son of Mary, and in, verse, uh, in Matthew 13, they're calling him uh, the carpenter's son. What does that tell you about his miraculous birth? Did they really believe that was miraculous birth? Otherwise, they wouldn't even be questioning this. Not only that, but we know, as we read throughout Matthew, that even his own brothers and sisters didn't seem to believe his miraculous birth. Maybe even Mary and Joseph backslid and said, well, I don't know if I really believe this anymore, because they were having problems with what he was doing, some things that he was doing, and healing. Uh, but it's obvious to me that either Mary and Joseph still believed and they kept it to themselves, and people just assumed Jesus was the, the son of, of Joseph, or they didn't believe it. They didn't believe in the miraculous birth of Jesus. Otherwise, they wouldn't be calling him the carpenter's son. And they wouldn't be marveling at the wisdom by which he spoke or marveling at the mighty works he did. So not only did they have unbelief in him, unbelief of where he came from, unbelief in how he came into this world, and unbelief that he could do mighty works. Now, this, this scripture here in Mark 6, 5 and 6 really kind of destroys this Calvinism issue, doesn't it? Because what limited God's power? Wait a minute now. 
Are you guys telling me that men can limit God? Is that what you're telling me? Well, if He allows it to happen that way, yeah. That's the system God has set up. Now, God doesn't always do it that way. We saw back in Matthew uh, chapter 12 and verse 22 that Jesus healed a man who was both blind and mute. He couldn't talk to Jesus and say, Jesus, heal me. He didn't ask Jesus to heal him because he couldn't ask him to heal him. But he healed him anyway. So Jesus doesn't always work that way. But in most instances, if someone doesn't want healing, he's not going to heal them. So the way God has set it up, yes, he has set a system up that men's unbelief can limit him at times. Definitely in regards to salvation. That man's unbelief will limit how God, what God, who God can forgive, who God can save, who God can cleanse. And that really destroys this whole idea that God is forcing every single little thing to happen. And everything he wants to happen does happen. Because it's obvious from what we see here that Jesus wanted to heal more people. He wanted to do mighty works, but he couldn't and he marveled at it. But if he, did, he predestined them to be that way, why would he be surprised? Why would he marvel at it? But he wanted to do more mighty works. But because of their unbelief, he couldn't. That's the way God set it up. Now, God could have set up a system where we had no free will. But in His sovereignty, He's given man free will and set up a system where we do have free will. And in His sovereignty, He's allowed to do that, can't He? Can't He in His sovereignty choose to do that? Or are we going to limit His sovereignty to saying He can't give free will? That's what Calvinists actually do. They think their God is all sovereign. I think they're limiting God's sovereignty by saying He can't do this and saying He has to do this. Now, God could have forced these healings upon them, but he chose not to. He wanted their belief to cooperate. And because their belief did not cooperate, he said, well, I can't do anything for you. Sorry. Okay, so now we've read through all three accounts now. Now, do you see anything in these three accounts that would lead you to believe that they're separate accounts? Anything? This sounds like that the uh, what was going on before this is happening and wonder uh chronology of it. Right. One one uh one passage gives it when you came from this place to this place and mm-hmm. I just you know I don't have enough time to look at it really closely right sure. now, but sure. So I guess that's my question. Here he's in Matthew 12 and 13. He's got this big uh, long preach going on. Right. And you don't you know, see that at once. Sure. Yeah, uh, when it comes to the synoptic gospels, when I say synoptic, I'm talking about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay? Those are the three that have almost every story is the same. There's some difference in all of them, there's some extra details in some in different stories. But they're called synoptic gospels. Okay, they aren't all chronological. Impossible. Okay, so our first presupposition determining if this is a, a the first time or the second time or it's the, they're all the same time is trying to determine which one of the gospels is chronological because they can't all be. Now the conclusion I've come to is that since Matthew was the only disciple of Jesus who's writing a gospel, that his is chronological. Okay, Mark was not a disciple of Jesus. 
He may be getting his account from Peter. I don't know. Luke looked into these things. He was a physician, but he was not with Jesus all on the way. He was not one of the 12 disciples. Matthew was, though. Now, John's a whole different story. John's kind of separate. Okay, we're not even talking about John here. But Matthew, I've come to the conclusion that his is the chronological one simply for the reason, for no other reason, but that he was the, one of the disciples of Jesus. He was there all along from the beginning. He was one of the first disciples called from his tax collector booth. Okay? Um, now, there's something called the Harmony of the Gospel. We've done this before. But the Harmony of the Gospel, you might have one in the back of your Bible. I have one in the back of my Bible. It has the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John all together and gives you scripture references and tries to tell you in chronological order how it happened. And uh, some harmonies of the gospel will say this is a second. This is a second encounter here. That this this encounter we see here is um, is similar to Mark's encounter, but then uh, the Luke encounter happened much earlier on in ministry. But that assumes that Luke is chronological, which I don't assume. Okay, I don't know why they assume that. I don't assume that. I have they haven't given any evidence of why they assume this. That's what they do. So um, I'm going to say. As of right now, on the research I have done, this is the same exact encounter. Okay? I don't see how Luke could come first, and they're going to throw him off the cliff and come back, and, and they're going to say the same things again they said before, when there's only 1,500, 2,000 people in the whole town. And they probably all know him. You know, so they're not going to say the same things again in Matthew. It says, this is not the carpenter's son. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Why would they say that again if they'd already experienced it earlier on, six months to a year before, in his ministry? Yeah, why is he back? Let's go throw off the cliff now. We didn't finish it last time. Let's go finish it. That's what they're going to say. So they're not going to sit around the synagogue and say, well, where did he get his mighty works? And it's the synagogue. Keep in mind. I think it's probably only one synagogue in all that town. So, you know, I, I don't think it's the second encounter. I think it's the only encounter. And the encounters, they look very much alike. Very similar things. There's extra details in each one, but very similar. And so we see that Jesus had at least four brothers, uh, and he had many sisters, at least two sisters, plural, there. So Mary obviously didn't stay a virgin. And then according to Augustine's uh, definition of, uh, of original sin, she became a sinner, because she, she, her immaculate conception got messed up there, because she gave birth to children, and that uh, sexual activity within marriage is what progenates the sinful nature in the children. And it's sinful in, it, in of itself. Okay. Uh, the, the intimacy within marriage, according to Augustine's definition of original sin, is what puts the sin nature in the child. And that in and of itself, according to Augustine, is sinful. Uh, but according to the Catholics, they would say Mary was a conception. She never sinned, ever. Uh, she had the same kind of conception Jesus had to some degree. So she was born without a sinful nature, and she didn't have any other children. She was never a sinner. But if Augustine's definition of original sin is right, then she couldn't possibly stay non-a-sinner because she had extra children, which according to Augustine's definition makes her a sinner because that act is sinful in and of itself. So they're, 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 it's like you know, if someone tells a lie, they tell five other lies to cover it up, to keep it going. So you have one false teaching you start with, you have all the other false teachings to cover up that are found in the Word of God to kind of make it fit. But it doesn't fit. Okay? So we, we see that Mary, once again, she had other children, at least, at least four other sons, at least two other daughters. We don't know the names of, of, of Jesus' sisters, but we do know the name of his brother. And we know that James 
was the one who wrote the, the epistle of James, the half-brother of Jesus. He was the first bishop of Jerusalem. And he, what, what happened, now we, we talked about this before, what happened to James? How was he killed? Do you remember? Close. He didn't fall off. Pushed off the Temple Mount. <laughs> Pushed off the Temple Mount. Oops. No, it was kind of like, but that, that didn't kill him. And then someone took a fuller's club, which is used to beat out laundry, and beat him until he, di- he died. That's what happened to the half-brother of Jesus. Okay. So he was one to lay down his life for his, the gospel of his brother, his half-brother. And then you get to this, uh, this last verse here. You cannot do many mighty works here because of their unbelief. Back in 2006, we are living in Clayton, North Carolina, and we only had... Uh, just had just had peanut. It was about four and a half years ago. She was a newborn. Yeah, she was a newborn. We just got back from the hospital, and I was going to take Malachi, I think, to the park, just me and him, so we can spend time together and get him out of the house. You know, let the shower run. You know, let the shower water get comfortable. And I, I went to step in the shower, put his foot, and I slipped, and I didn't hit this on anything. But you can see there's still a mark there from where I broke my bone. This leg didn't. There's nothing to hit on. All you have is a shower curtain. There's nothing to hit it on. And uh, I had a hairline fracture in my fibula and a complete break in my tibia. And it started bleeding right here, so that means it, it, it poked through the skin a little bit, too, to some degree. And so I went to the doctor and uh, went to the hospital. I did some extra. They only found the hairline fracture at first on my fibula, the outside bone, the smaller bone. And so they put me in a soft cast. I had a you know, hard part back here, but soft on the front. And you know, so I, did, I stayed off for a week, went to follow up my doctor at the VA hospital up in Durham, North Carolina. They took the soft cast off, did some more x-rays, and they found the complete break in the tibia. And Dr. Gonsavage was telling me that this is a normal thing to happen because if a bone breaks comp- a clean break, it was right back on top of itself, and you take an x-ray right away, you can't see the break. But once it starts to heal, it starts to calcify, you can now see a line there where it was broken. So I went to the VA hospital and I said, man, you got a complete break in your tibia. I'm glad you came to see us and didn't start walking around. That would have been very, I mean, it could have broke right through the skin if I tried to walk around on it. So they put a hard cast on me. They said, well, you'll be on it, you know, four to six weeks. You'll have a hard cast on. And so we went back about a week and a half, two weeks later, and they cut it off. And I went there. Angela's there with me, just me and you, I think. And I had a shoe on this foot, and I had my cast on this foot. And they took it off and said, you're completely healed. Your, your hairline fracture and your tibia, are, like nothing ever happened. And so I walked out there with a bare foot and this foot because I didn't bring a shoe with me. I had no idea I was going to walk out of there without a cast on. And... Uh, you know, I, I attribute that to the Lord's strength too. But I, I think what the Lord was doing there is that that, that time, at three weeks, I was able to spend time in fasting and prayer. I couldn't get up and do anything. I had to just be still and know that He was God. And from that flowed this sermon I preached called The Cry at, at a, a church in North Carolina. And I was the associate pastor at the time at the church. And that sermon ultimately got me fired from that church because people were walking out of the sermon. They were calling, the pastor was on vacation. They were calling the pastor, telling them they wouldn't come back if they heard I was preaching again. You know, so they basically just had to let me go for, for the sake of their people coming back. Yeah, yeah. So, but the, the Lord did a work in me through that. And, uh, you know, I think, I think we should be able to realize that one of the reasons why we don't see more mighty works, more healings, is because of a lack of unbelief. And 
You know, I know there's lots of false healers out there. A lot of charlatans. A lot of those who, you know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, Sean, you brought it up. You know, this, this balance between not trusting those people, being skeptical, and also trusting the Lord. Not having a lack of belief. And so, I just want to encourage you through my testimonies to, to trust the Lord more in this area. That when you have a physical ailment, don't go straight to medicine. Go to the Lord first. Let Him touch you and heal you. Uh, he won't always do it, I don't think. But he's, he's able to do it. And you must seek Him about it that way first, I would say. So, Okay, well, the usual, does anyone have any questions about the teaching today or comments or things they want to add to what was said? Please feel free. Last week, okay. that you just mentioned about the tears and support. An interesting thing that is mentioned there says that Satan, the enemy, right. comes while men slept. Right. Uh-huh. So in the world, a lot of times we see Christianity being very offensive to people in the preaching of the gospel. Right. But they don't see Satan's working for the ugliness that it is. Right. They only see as he clothes himself as an angel of light. They right. only see the, the delicious part of sin. Right. But they don't see the ugliness, the death, the, the murder right. that is behind his thinking because he comes through viciously right. while men sleep. Right. And so that was that's a real standard. That that, that's a good point, brother. You know, he, he's a devil, he's a lying, prowling around, looking to devour his enemy. And uh, we only be able to sleep like zebras, not watching our backs. And the lion's coming to get us. You need to be awake and alert at all times. Amen. To expose the works. Yes. Yes. Amen. Amen, brother. Thank you for that.